I've ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where a mobile steel runs cracking And the dead set the back road stop Could you find me? Would you kiss my eyes? Lay down Silence is To be born again To be born again From the far side of the ocean Yeah, I put the wheels in motion Then I stand with my arms behind me I'm pushing out the door Could you find me? Would you kiss on my eyes? Lay me down The silence is To be born again To be born again Well, hello, friends, brothers and sisters, children of God. Welcome back to Jack the Bridge. This visit, I look forward to reading the concluding third of the essay Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson, first published in 1841. I'm going to begin by just saying some of this writing is is somewhat amusing, but also rather prophetic. And I'll let you draw your own conclusions, but you will hear what I mean. If you listen closely to these extremely brilliant, eloquently written and wise words from uh, a man at the time, I believe he was probably 38 years old, born in 1803, and this was 1841. In any event, because the last in the last part that I read you, I concluded with these last words that I find extremely well put. So without further ado, here we go. Yes, but I cannot sell my liberty and my power to save their sensibility. Besides, all persons have their moments of reasons. When they look out into the region of absolute truth, then will they justify me and do the same thing. The populace think that your rejection of popular standards is a rejection of all standard and mere antinomianism, 
and the bold sensualist will use the name of philosophy to gild his crimes, but the law of consciousness abides. There are two professionals, in one or the other of which we must be shriven. You may fulfill your round of duties by clearing yourself in the direct or in the reflex way. Consider whether you have satisfied your relations to father, mother, cousin, neighbor, town, cat, and dog, whether any of these can upbraid you. But I may also neglect this reflex standard and absolve me to myself. I have my own stern claims and perfect circle. It denies the name of duty to many offices that are called duties. But if I can discharge in its depths, it enables me to dispense with the popular code. If anyone imagines that this law is lax, let him keep its commandment one day. And truly, it demands something godlike in him who cast off the common motives of humanity and has ventured to trust himself for a taskmaster. High be his heart, faithful his will, clear his sight, that he may be in good earnest be doctrine, society, law to himself, that a simple purpose may be to him as strong as iron necessity is to others. If any man considers the present aspects of what is called by distinction society, he will see the need of these ethics. The sinew and heart of man seem to be drawn out, and we are become timorous, desponding whimperers. We are afraid of truth, afraid of fortune, afraid of death, and afraid of each other. Our age yields no great and perfect persons. We want men and women who shall renovate life and our social state, but we see that, that most natures are insolvent, cannot satisfy their own wants, have an ambition out of all proportion to their logical force, and do lean and beg and night continually. Our housekeeping is mendicant. Our arts, our occupations, our marriages, our religion, we have not chosen, but society has chosen for us. We are parlor soldiers. We shun the rugged battle of faith where strength is born. If our young men miscarry in their first enterprises, they lose heart. If the young merchant fails, men say he is ruined. If the finest genius studies at one of our colleges and is not installed in an office within one year afterwards in the cities or suburbs of Boston or New York, it seems to his friends and to himself that he might, that he is right in being disheartened and in complaining the rest of his life. A sturdy lad from New Hampshire or Vermont who in turn tries all the professions, who teams it, farms it, peddles, keeps a school, preaches, edits a newspaper, goes to Congress, buys a township, and so forth, in successive years, and always, like a cat, falls on his feet. It's worth a hundred of these city dolls. He walks abreast of his days and feels no shame in not studying a profession, but he does not postpone his life, but lives already. He has not one chance, but a hundred chances. Let a Stoic 
open the resources of man and tell men they are not leaning willows, but can, can and must detach themselves, that with exercise of self-trust, new power shall appear, that a man is the word made flesh, born to shed healing to the nations, that he should be ashamed of our compassion, and that the moment he acts from himself, tossing the laws, the books, idolatries, and customs out of the window, we pity him no more, but thank and revere him. And that teacher shall restore the life of man to splendor and make his name dear to all history. It is easy to see that a greater self-reliance must work a revolution in all the offices and relations of men in their religion, in their education, in their pursuits, their modes of living, their association, in their property, in their speculative views. One, in what prayers do men follow themselves? That which they call a holy office is not so much as brave and manly. Prayer looks abroad and asks for some foreign addition to come through some foreign virtue and loses itself in endless mazes of natural and supernatural and meditorial and, and miraculous. Prayer that craves a particular commodity, anything less than all good, is vicious. Prayer is the contemplation of the facts of life from the highest point of view. It is the soliloquy of a beholding and jubilant soul. It is the Spirit of God pronouncing His works good. But prayer as a means to effect a private end is meanness and theft. It supposes dualism and not unity in nature and consciousness. As soon as the man is at one with God, he does not beg. He will not, he will then see prayer in all action. The prayer of a farmer kneeling in his field to weed it, the prayer of the rower kneeling with the stroke of his oar, are true prayers heard throughout nature, though for cheap ends. Caratach in Fletcher's Bonduca, when admonished to inquire, the mind of the God of Audate replies, His hidden meaning lies in our endeavors. Our valors are our best gods. Another sort of false prayers are our regrets. Discontent is the want of self-reliance. It is infirmity of will. Regret calamities if you can thereby help the sufferer. If not, attend your own work, and, and already the evil begins to be repaired. Our sympathy is just a base. We come to them who weep foolishly and sit down and cry for company. Instead of imparting to them truth and health and rough electric shocks, putting them once more in communication with their own reason, the secret of fortune is joy in our hands. Welcome evermore to gods and men is the self-helping man. For him, all doors are flung wide. Him, all tongues greet. All honors crown. All eyes follow with desire. Our love goes out to him and embraces him because he did not need it. We solicitously and apologetically caress and celebrate him because he held on his way and scorned our disapprobation.
The gods love him because men hated him. To the persevering mortal, said Zoroaster, the blessed immortals are swift. As men's prayers are a disease of the will, so are their creeds a disease of the intellect. They say with those foolish Israelites, let not God speak to us lest we die. Speak thou, speak any man with us, and we will obey. Everywhere I am hindered of meeting God in my brother because he has shut his own temple doors and recites fables merely of his brothers and or his brother's brother's God. Every new mind is a new classification. If it prove a mind of uncommon activity and power, a lock, a Lavoisier, a Hutton, a Bentham, a Fourier. It imposes its classification on other men. And lo, a new system. In proportion to the depth of the thought, and so to the number of the objects it touches and brings within each of the pupil, is his, contempl- is his complacency. But chiefly is this apparent is this apparent in creeds the churches, which are also classifications of some powerful mind acting on the elemental thought of duty in man's relation to the highest, such as Calvinism, Quakerism, Swedenborgism. The pupil takes the same delight in subordinating everything to the new terminology as a girl who has just learned botany in seeing a new earth and new seasons thereby. It will happen for a time that the pupil will find his intellectual power has grown by the study of his master's mind. But in all unbalanced minds, the classification is idolized, passes for the end and not for a speedily exhaustible means, so that the walls of the system blend in their eye in the remote horizon with the walls of of the universe. The luminaries of heaven seem to be hung on the arch air their master built. They cannot imagine how you aliens have any right to see how you can see. It must be somehow that you stole the light from us. They do not yet perceive the light. Unsystematic, indomitable, will break into any cabin, even into theirs. Let them chirp a while and call it their own. If they are honest and do well, presently their neat new pinfold will be too straight and low, will crack, will lean, will rot and vanish. And the immortal light all young and joyful, million-orbed, million-colored, will beam over the universe as on the first morning. Two, it is for want of self-culture that the superstition of traveling, whose idols are Italy, England, Egypt, retains its fascination for all educated Americans. They who made England, Italy, or Greece venerable in the imagination did so by sticking fast where they were, like an axis of the earth. In manly hours, we feel that duty is our place. The soul is no traveler. The wise man stays at home, and when his necessities, his duties on any occasion call him from his house or into foreign lands, 
He is at home still and shall make men sensible by the expression of his countenance that he goes. The missionary of wisdom and virtue and cities visit cities and men like a sovereign and not like an interloper or a valet. I have no churlish objection to the circumnavigation of the globe for the purposes of art, of study, of benevolence, so that the man is first domesticated or does not go abroad with the hope of finding somewhat greater than he knows. He who travels to be amused or to get somewhat which he does not carry travels away from himself and grows old even in youth among old things." In Thebes, in Palmyra, his will and mind have become old and dilapidated as they. He carries ruins to ruins. Traveling is a fool's paradise. Our first journeys discover to us the indifference of places. At home, I dream that at, that at Naples, at Rome, I can be intoxicated with beauty and lose my sadness. I pack my trunk, embrace my friends, embark on the sea, and at last, wake up in Naples. And there beside me is the stern fact, the sad self, unrelenting, identical that I fled from. I seek the Vatican and the palaces. I affect to be intoxicated with sights and suggestions, but I am not intoxicated. My giant goes with me wherever I go. Three. But the rage of traveling is a symptom of a deeper unsoundness affecting the whole intellectual action. The intellect is vagabond and our system of education fosters restlessness. Our minds travel when our bodies are forced to stay at home. We imitate. And what is imitation but the traveling of the mind? Our houses are built with foreign taste. Our shelves are garnished with foreign ornaments. Our opinions, our tastes, our faculties lean and follow the past and the distant. The soul created the arts wherever they have flourished. It was in his own mind that the artist sought his model. It was an application of his own thought to the thing to be done and the conditions to be observed. And why need we copy the Doric or the Gothic model? Beauty, convenience, Grandeur of thought and quaint expression are as near to us as any, and if the American artist will study with hope and love the precise thing to be done by him, considering the climate, the soil, the length of the day, the wants of the people, the habit of the form of the government, he will create a house in which all these will find themselves fitted, and taste and sentiment will be satisfied also, insist on yourself, never imitate. Your own gift, you can present every moment with the cumulative force of a whole life's cultivation. But of the adopted talent of another, you have only an extemporaneous half-possession, that which each can do best. None but his maker can teach him. No man yet knows what it is, nor can till that person has exhibited it. Where is the master who could have sought Shakespeare? Where is the master who could have instructed Franklin 
or Washington or Bacon or Newton. Every great man is a unique. Scipionism of Scipio is precisely that part he could not borrow. Shakespeare will never be made by the study of Shakespeare. Do that which is assigned to you. And you cannot hope too much or dare too much. There is at this moment for you an utterance brave and grand as that of the colossal chisel of Phidias or trowel of the Egyptians or the pen of Moses or Dante, but different from all these. Not possibly will the soul, all rich, all eloquent, with thousand cloven tongue designed to repeat itself. But if you can hear what these patriarchs say, surely you can reply to them in the same pitch of voice. For the ear and the tongue are two organs of one nature. Abide in the simple and noble regions of thy life. Obey thy heart and thou shalt reproduce the four worlds again. Four. As our religion... Our education, our art look abroad. So does our spirit of society. All men plume themselves on the improvement of society and no man improves. Society never advances. It recedes as fast on one side as it gains on the other. It undergoes continual changes. It is a barbarous. It is civilized. It is Christianized, it is rich, it is scientific, but this change is not amelioration. For everything that is given, something is taken. Society acquires new arts and loses old instincts. What a contrast between the clad, reading, writing, thinking American with a watch, a pencil, and a bill of exchange in his pocket, and a naked New Zealander whose property is a club, a spear, a mat, and an undivided 20th of a shed to, a, to sheep under, to sleep under, pardon me. But compare the health of the two men, and you shall see that the white man has lost his aboriginal strength. If the traveler tell us truly, strike the savage with a broad axe, and in a day or two the flesh shall unite and heal as if you struck the blow into soft pitch. And the same blow shall send the white man, pardon, white to his grave. The civilized man has built a coach, but has lost the use of his feet. He is supported on crutches but lacks so much support of muscle. He has a fine Geneva watch, but he fails the skill to tell the hour by the sun. A Greenwich nautical almanac he has, and so being sure of the information when he wants it, the man in the street does not know a star in the sky. The solstice he does not observe. The equinox he knows as little. And the whole bright calendar of the year is without a dial in his mind. 
His notebooks impair his memory. His libraries overload his wit. The insurance office increases the number of accidents. And it may be a question whether machinery does not encumber, whether we have not lost by refinement some energy, by a Christianity entrenched in establishments, and form some vigor of wild virtue. For every Stoic was a Stoic. But in Christendom, where is the Christian? There is no more deviation in the moral standard than in the standard of height or bulk. No greater men are now than ever were. A singular equality may be observed between the great men of the first and of the last ages. Nor can all the science, art, religion, and philosophy of the 19th century avail to educate greater men than Plutarch's heroes. Three or four and twenty centuries ago. Not in time is the race progressive. Phocian, Socrates, Anaxagoras, Diogenes are great men, but they leave no class. He who, re who is really of their class will not be called by their name, but will be his own man, and in turn the founder of a sect. The arts and inventions of each period are only its costume and do not invigorate men. The harm of the improved machinery may compensate its good. Hudson and Baring accomplished so much in their fishing boats as to astonish Parry and Franklin, whose equipment exhausted the resources of science and art. Galileo, with, a, with an opera glass, discovered a more splendid series of celestial phenomena than any one since. Columbus found the New World in an undecked boat. It is curious to see the period periodical disuse and perishing of means and machinery which were introduced with loud laudation a few years or centuries before, the great genius returns to essential man. We reckoned the improvements of the art of war among the triumphs of science, and yet Napoleon conquered Europe by the biovac, which consisted of falling back on naked valor and disencumbering it of all aids. Emperor held it impossible to make a perfect army, says Las Casas, without abolishing our arms, magazines, commissaries, and carriages until imita imitation of the Roman custom, the soldier should receive his supply of corn. Grind it in his hand mill and bake his bread himself. Society is a wave. The wave moves onward, but the water of which it is composed does not. The same particle does not rise from the valley to the ridge. Its unity is only phenomenal. The persons who make up a nation today next year die, and their experience dies with them. And so the reliance on property, including the reliance on governments, which protected, is the want of self-reliance. Men have looked away from themselves and at things so long that they have come to esteem the religious 
learned and civil institutions as guards of property. And they deprecate assaults on these because they feel them to be assaults on property. They measure their esteem of each other by what each has, not by what each is. But a cultivated man becomes ashamed of his property and of a new respect for his nature. Especially, he hates what he has if he is that, if he see that is accidental, came to him by inheritance or gift or crime. Then he feels that it is not having, it does not belong to him, has no root in him, and merely lies there because no revolution or no robber takes it away. But that which a man is does always by necessity acquire, and what the man acquires is living property which does not wait the beck of rulers or mobs or revolutions or fire or storm or bankruptcies, but perpetually renews itself wherever the man breathes. They, thy lot of portion or portion of life, said Caliph Ali, is seeking after thee. Therefore be at rest from seeking after it. Our dependence on these foreign goods leads us to our slavish respect for numbers. The political parties meet in numerous conventions. The greater the concourse and with each new uproar of announcement, the delegation from Essex, the Democrats from New Hampshire, the Whigs of Maine, the young patriot feels himself stronger than before by a new thousand of eyes and arms. In like manner, the reformers summon conventions and vote and resolve in multitude. Not so, O oh friends, will the God deign to enter and inhabit you, but by a method precisely the reverse. It is only a man, it is only as a man puts off all foreign support and stands alone that I see him to be strong and to prevail. He is weaker by every recruit to his banner. Is not a man better than a town? Ask nothing of men. And in the endless mutation, thou only firm column must presently appear the upholder of all that surrounds thee. He who knows that power is inborn, that he is weak because he has looked good, has looked for good out of him and elsewhere, and so perceiving throws himself unhesitatingly on his thought, instantly writes himself, stands in the erect position, commands his limbs, and works miracles. Just as a man who stands on his feet is stronger than a man who stands on his head. So, Use all that is good fortune. Most men gamble with her and gain all and lose all as her wheel rolls. But do, do thou leave as unlawful these winnings and deal with cause and effect, the chancellors of God. In the will work and acquire and thou hast chained the wheel of chance and shalt sit Hereafter, out of fear from her rotations, a political victory, a rise of rents, a recovery of your sick, 
or the return of your absent friend or some other favorable event raises your spirits and you think good days are preparing for you, do not believe it. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. The end. That's the conclusion of Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance. It's a very turbulently windy day out there. So much that some mechanical issues have happened here. And uh, it has slowed progress. The wheel has stopped turning. Not even the metaphorical wheel, but the wheel that helps people go up and down the hill over here. And uh, so I had this peace this afternoon, even with all this wind, that I've been able to uh, sit still and read. And I'm very pleased to conclude this for all of you who listened. Uh, I thank you for spending any time. And I apologize for any, uh, any, any of the stammering that I've done. But most of all, I want to thank God for this day. And brothers and sisters, we all know we're sinners. And because we know Christ died on the cross, that God brought him back to life. We know that the world is here, but let's go with God first. Every day starts with God first. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, know that Jesus Christ loves you. And I guess I do too. Do the next right thing. And the world will fall into place around you. Godspeed.